0: Well, it's an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to just, a little side note, I just want to thank you guys. Uh, I've been going through the house hunting uh, process, and I don't know if you guys know, but it's a crazy world out there uh, in the real estate world. But uh, we got a house last week, and so, uh, man, we, yeah, just a huge prayer answer for us. Uh, that triangle is no joke to try to drive across. And so, uh, thankful to be closer to the people that the Lord has called me to. So, uh, excited about that. But as we get to know each other a little bit, I went to, uh, uh, the University of Nebraska. So please don't throw anything at me, but, uh, I did, uh, enjoy my experience there. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. One or two. That's good. Uh, and so, uh, One of the things that I studied was uh, communication studies. And I know that that's the major that everybody makes fun of, uh, but I really did learn a lot. And uh, one of my favorite things that we studied uh, was this thing called speech act theory. Uh, And what I loved about it, it was the study of people telling stories. And I loved kind of the labs that we did with this because what we would do is we would observe families or people in organizations. We would just listen to the stories that they would tell one another. And it wasn't really about the story. They communicated a ton about who they were as people, who they were as a family, who they were as an organization, just by which stories they chose to tell and how they would tell them. For instance, for me and my family, when we get together at holidays, you guys know what I'm talking about. When you get together at holidays or celebrations, you've got the same six stories that people just uh, rehearse over and over and over again, right? Uh, maybe somebody adds a joke this time or somebody adds some new information that you didn't know. But it's the same six stories and you're like, all right, I'm trying to pay attention. But you learn a ton. in My family When uh, my family's from a little small town in Maysville, Kentucky, home of George and Rosemary Clooney. So shout out to them. But uh, uh, we're from Maysville, Kentucky. And every time we get together, my, my, uh, my grandparents, my parents tell this story of what they would do for Christmas way back in the day. Uh, we'd have a country ham. I don't really like country ham, don't tell my family, uh, but uh, I've hit it for a long time. Uh, but we have this country ham, and they rehearsed this story of when they were kids, when my, grand, when my grandfather was working, they would save money all year. They would put these coins in a jar, uh, and they would save up, and they would take it to a butcher during Christmas, and they would be able to afford this country ham, and they would celebrate uh, with one another. But as we told the story and I hear the story, I noticed that really the story is about more than just the story itself, right? Uh, that it's, it's teaching something about how they define the Robinsons, right? How they define our, our family. That, that they want the, our clan to be a, a hardworking people, ones that uh, don't attract attention but put their heads down and work Hard, uh, of people who who are humble, of people that enjoy being with one another, that we celebrate family and riches in family and not just in wealth. And as we tell the story over and over and over again, we rehearse that. Uh, For different organizations, everyone that has maybe started a new job, the first two days have nothing to do with work, right? They're just indoctrinating you with stories to try to tell a story about who they are uh, as an organization, right? For us today, God gives us this story. As we've been working through Exodus 12, this is the story that as we tell over and over and over again, every year they're to tell this story to one another, this story of the Passover, that, that God gives them this story to rehearse over and over and over again because it communicates something about who they are, about who he is, and how they relate with one another, and so they tell it year after year after year to be a reminder of what God has done for them and who they are. And so today uh, we've kind of been working. I, I got the I got the fun part. Jeremy took the more depressing part. He got destruction the last three weeks uh, in the plagues, you know, and I get redemption, which is fun for me, not as fun for him. Uh, but we've seen that that as we studied the plagues, that God's character is one of judgment. Uh, this is not a fun topic to talk about, but God is not who we make him out to be in a greeting card. God is who he is, his character, uh, and his nature. And so as we've seen from the very beginning of creation, that as when God is confronted with sin, that he condemns and he judges. That, that is very part of his very nature, that sin produces judgment and, and wrath. However, Jeremy last week uh, kind of opened a can of this thing called forbearance. I love the term forbearance. Uh, really, we only use it a lot in today's world and kind of the loan world, right? And like the, the college debt world, if anybody's in that world, don't raise your hand, I don't wanna know, but uh, the college debt world that, that, that in forbearance, they choose, even though you still owe the debt, they choose not to collect now, but to wait until a future date, even though it's still owed to wait until a future date as this act of mercy, to then collect. We've seen that in God's character, in his his nature, that not only does he produce wrath and judgment, but he also is participating in this forbearance, that in the life of Pharaoh that he's judging, but he's waiting till later to collect his debt. In our lives, that he is waiting to produce the judgment that we deserve because of sin, waiting for as many as possible to come to Christ in order that we might have life. And he practiced this, this, Forbearance, But since the very beginning of the earth, we see God practice this judgment. We see in Genesis as Adam and Eve sin for the first time that God uh, produces wrath, but he also produces this, this way of salvation, this way of redemption. He kills the lamb, he produces the clothes, he gives a promise of sin being defeated. Then we see in, in, in the life of Abraham as he walks up with Isaac that God chooses a way of redemption that he provides a ram. We see in the life of Noah that as he indu- inducts wrath on the earth, that he provides this ark of redemption. And then today, we will see that God, even in the midst of his wrath, provides the blood of an unblemished lamb to save his people. And then ultimately, we will see that it points to a final sacrifice in the substitute Uh, in Jesus Christ. We're confronted very early in the passage that we're getting ready to read, uh, that two ideas when it comes to God's wrath, he kind of puts to bed. One, that it's for some people and not others. We're about to see that as God uses this I am statement, this I am statement of this time being a a wrathful God who enacts justice, uh, that it is not partial. That all the Pharaoh's uh, court, all of the people in the high court and all of the people in the dungeons, all of the people, all of the cattle, all will experience this plague that we introduced last week, this idea of the firstborn being killed. That there is no, there is no uh, favoritism, there is no nepotism, that all people will experience this. And then the second misconception when it comes to God's wrath, that how, how, could he, could, how could he enact wrath on so many people? I find this idea in culture a lot as I talk about the gospel. Like, how, how could God enact his wrath on so many And really, it's an understanding of who his character and his nature is. For instance, if I took this pen, I like to do this illustration. If I took this pen and I dropped it, it drops to the ground. Why? Because of the laws of gravity, right? And so if I drop this pen again, it's going to do the same thing. Right, And I could drop this pen 400 million times over and over and over again, because of the laws of physics, because of its nature, the pen will fall every single time. In the same way, when it comes to God's character, he's not a CEO sitting back, choosing when to dispense love and when to dispense grace. That's not who God is. But in his very character and nature, Every single time he is confronted with sin, he judges and condemns. And every single time, because of the same nature that is one, he produces a way of redemption, a way where his wrath can be poured out on a substitute. And so we're going to see that today as we read Exodus 12. If you're in, your, in the Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus 12. We're going to read the first 13 verses. This is what I want you to see uh, in the text today. We're gonna jump around. There's 50 verses in in Exodus 12, so we're not gonna read them all, but I'll jump to to some. I want you to see four effects of redemption, the four effects of redemption that we see in Exodus 12. Here we go. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor should take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Father, thank you so much for just your word, Lord, that uh, that just it's it's something that we rehearse over and over and over again to communicate who you are. Lord, I pray that we would see you Uh, for the God that you are, a God that that, that loves us, that has redeemed us for a purpose. We love you in Jesus' name, we pray, amen, amen. All right, as we jump in, I want you to see four effects of redemption. The first effect that we wanna look at is that we are defined by redemption. I want you to look again at verse two. I, I think this is a really interesting thing that they start the passage with. This month shall be for the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This is an interesting observation because uh, they usually used a, a lunar calendar in, in this day, kind of divided into tens, but most cultures would pick something to start their calendars by. And so you could literally go uh, from this time all the way through the Roman uh, Empire in the time of Jesus, you could see in different cultures that their calendars were start in a different year. This has made it really hard for historians. as they try to date things to try to figure out whose calendar starts where. But normally what they would do is when they started a calendar, it would be based On some kind of big victory, Uh, some type of man they overcame and they protected, or some famous leader that was a a big deal would want to mark the calendar by his name and not someone else's. And so all of these different cultures would have what they defined as their story be the start of the calendar. This is what's so interesting as God tells them that this is going to be your story, this is going to be the start of your calendar that it's not some grand victory that they've achieved. They didn't uprise and overthrow Pharaoh and the people and celebrate every year this, this story. It's not even the law. It's not later when they're given the law of how to, how to serve God. Like It's not that either, but this is the definition of their people. This, 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 this right here. They are to go kill the weakest animal that probably has ever existed, right? Literally, probably like a seven-year-old could go out and kill a sheep, right? It's, it's this docile little thing that has no idea what it's doing, that, that it's, it's not a lion or a bear or this act of strength. It's, it's simple, you just go and get it and kill it. And, and this is what's crazy is you're gonna take the blood and you're gonna put it on your door frame. Now, for us, we're we're maybe familiar with the Passover story, but you can imagine some of the the movers and shakers of the Israelite people are saying, so you're telling me there's gonna be this curse of destruction, this plague that's gonna destroy everybody's firstborn. And this is your plan. This is your plan of salvation. It's not a battle. It's not anything. It's, you're gonna kill a little weak animal and you're gonna put its blood on a doorframe. And then this is the crazy part. You're gonna just stay put. Don't leave the house. You're just going to stay. This is the definition of God's people. This is how they're going to be defined forever, that they're the people in the midst of slavery who were freed by what? By just staying in the blood, applying the blood to the doorframe and staying. For us as a people, a church, a people of God. Man, how are we defined? It's, it's probably not gonna be by some act of strength or feet. We are defined at our core in relation to our to God by staying in the blood, by trusting in the blood. I can imagine as they started to listen and the families around them, they started to scream. Some of you, I have a child, I have a firstborn son. Uh, my gut instinct is to just... I'm I'm gonna do something. I'm whittling a a sharp stick in that air. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to protect my son, whatever I have to do. But I have to listen to the God of the universe who told me the redemption plan is to simply stay in the blood. This is amazing to me that this is the definition of who they are as a people, a people who didn't overcome themselves, but simply applied the blood and stay. And that's our story as well. Blessed is the man whose sin will never count against him." You see, as they just witnessed the plagues, they saw a God of destruction, one who enacted wrath on a people, but this one also applied to them. They had kind of skirted those previous plagues. And so as they developed this relationship with God, remember, they're starting to learn about this God for the first time, uh, opposed to just stories from their past. They're learning about a God who is so powerful, he can enact plagues and frogs and locusts and dead cattle. And they're going to leave this place and he's the one that's going to be their God? That's a terrifying proposition. A terrifying proposition as they think of how they relate to God. But then he gives them this story, this story in which, yes, I I enact wrath against sin, but I will create a way. I will redeem you my way, not your way. And for the rest of time, they would be reminded year after year after year that they could not take things into their own hands, although they struggled with this concept, but they were to look to God and to trust in his blood, in his redemption plan. So the question for us is what are you defined by? It's so easy for us as we live life to to say, yes, I'm in Christ. I have this story I can tell you on a Sunday in the hallway, and then the rest of my life is defined by me trying to make it work and me trying to make everything click into place. For us as believers, as we work, we we trust that the blood is sufficient for our sin. You know, uh... (laughs) Just like the Israelites, you must apply the blood of the lamb and stay under its protection. So the first thing that we see is you have to be defined by redemption. It has to be your story. It must be the definition of who you are in Christ. The second thing we see is that we're united by redemption. In fact, in this text, we see a word in Hebrew appear for the first time. Uh, it's this word, I don't know if you caught it, but it's this word translated into English, congregation. Congregation. Congregation, And so we see it a, a few different times. We see it in verse 6. Uh, we see the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel. So that, that word is new. Then we see it again in verse 19, that same word, congregation. And then again in verse 47, this idea of congregation. Scholars say that in the Greek, Paul, when he uses the word ekklesia for church, a church gathering, that he's really channeling this Hebrew word and, and trying to make a parallel uh, between the two. You see, for, for, for the text here, that redemption is not redeemed into a solo sport, that, that it, throughout the Bible, we see every time that people are redeemed into a community that then pursue God's purposes for their life, to worship the God and serve the God who saved them. I think in our culture, it's interesting. I just was thinking this week, man, what unites people? Uh, just like, where do I see people that are united to some type of cause? Uh, I went to a a Royals game uh, just a few weeks ago, and I saw a few people in blue. Uh, Some people were wearing, you know, the other team's colors. I saw a couple of, like, golf claps in there, right? And, And I remember that just a few years ago, I would go into that building, and just a raucous roar of people united by cheering on this group of guys playing a game. You saw them united, but you see that they're united only for a a brief time, only in a certain set of circumstances. That is, we've gotten worse and worse and worse and worse that people break apart in their passion and excitement for the Royals. In student ministry, I see uh, groups of kids, a lot of times, trying to form around interests. You like basketball, let's be in a group together. We're united, right? You like music, let's be in a group together. We're united. And then you see over the course of life, you see relational difficulty, we, you see them break apart, you see life happens, they, they become ununited. But for the people of God who are redeemed in this radical way, this is to be the very thing that unites them together. This is to be the glue that keeps them all together. That as they look side to side, there's not one better than the other. There's not one who's offended that isn't worth redemption, that they've all been in the same state of slavery and they've all been brought out of it, all from darkness, all into light. And they look at one another knowing this is all of our stories that by ourselves we were slaves, but in Christ we have life, or in the blood we have life. And it's the same story for us. As you look side to side in the row, it's filled with people whose stories are they were in darkness. They were a slave to sin. The only way they knew how to live life was for themselves and trying to do it themselves. But one day God revealed that the plan was actually in the blood in his son, Jesus. And through him, they have new life. They're forgiven of their sins and now they have purpose. I'm convicted because for me, I think I could probably talk to someone about Chiefs football or the University of Nebraska for three or four hours. I could walk up to someone on the street and just start talking because they're wearing a t-shirt or a hat. But for me, the people that I'm the most united with, not by genetic blood, but by Christ's blood, man, am I able to engage their stories in the same way? Am I able to engage, hey, tell me about, man, your story in Christ. And as I do that, I'm reminded, over and over and over again about who God is and how he redeems and how he saves. Fellowship Aletha, we have to be a people who are united by the blood of Christ, united by the fact that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. As you see the Old Testament people have dissensions. You see them squibble and squabble and go different directions. God often reminds them, I am the Lord who redeemed you, who saved you out of Egypt. The same way for us as we disagree on X, Y, Z. Man, we have to be a people who go back to the basics of we are redeemed by the blood of Christ and therefore are united in one. In 1 Peter 2, we see the same concept Peter uses. He said, once you were a people, and once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, why? Because once you had not received mercy and now you have received mercy. Redemption governs Everything they do, it makes them a people. And so the challenge is simply for us as a body. Now, what can you do to pursue unitedness with our group this week? Maybe it's sharing a story. Maybe it's asking someone of their redemption story. Maybe it's inviting over and catching up. But can we be a people that passionately pursue being united because we've been redeemed by the lamb? So first, we see we're defined by redemption. Second, we see we're united by redemption. Third, we see that we're purposed, by redemption. The people of God, they aren't just saved from slavery, but they're, they're saved into something. Uh, I, I love this, this phrase by Pharaoh. He, he doesn't know it, he, but he's, he's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy when he says it. Look at it with me really quickly in verse 32. I love this. This is his breaking point. He says, well, let's start in verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from amongst my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. This is fascinating because Pharaoh finally over the weeks and weeks and weeks we've been studying, he has this breaking point where he gets the lesson. He finally realizes I actually serve that God. And he's for the entire time has viewed himself as a God. But for the first time, he, he, he understands Genesis 12 and it, it, that says this to Abraham, I will make a great nation of you and I will bless you and make your name great, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will dishonor those who curse you and all of the families of the earth, you shall be blessed that Abraham existed to bless the nations as God blessed him. And Pharaoh finally gets it, that his relationship to the people of God is gonna be the very thing that he serves, whether he wants to or not. We see the, the people of Egypt on their way out, not even realizing what they're doing. They're just throwing their stuff because they don't wanna be punished anymore. They're just throwing their gold and silver at the people of God, that even them who persecuted them for years don't even know it. They're serving the purposes of God. And as we live in a culture that often is antagonistic, is often frustrating, it's so important to note that even the people who are antagonizing the people of God, they don't even realize it, but they're also serving his purposes. For us as a people, we're redeemed from slavery. We're supposed to see a picture of sin, and we see that they're even dressed as they eat because they're ready to run from this state of slavery. And we see ourselves in that, that as we are redeemed, we're redeemed into a purpose to run from our sin, run away from it and serve the God of the Bible. In fact, the the phrase 56 times in scripture is used, I led you out of Egypt. He says it over and over and over again. This is the story they are to rehearse because they are purposed not to live in slavery and serve Pharaoh, but to live for God's purposes. For us, we must do the same. We must throw off the sin that so easily entangles and don't run back to our sin because we were set free in order to serve a greater purpose of the God of the universe. Let us run with perseverance as Hebrews 10 marks out. And so the question for us today in point three is, how are you doing on your true purpose? I feel like it's so easily to get entangled into to work and career and family. How are you doing it using those things to serve God's purposes? How are you letting him use your redemption to guide you in those conversations? And then lastly, we see point number four, the Passover story that we rehearse over and over and over again. We're prepared for full redemption, prepared for complete redemption. Now, I, back in the 90s, I watched a movie called Karate Kid. I don't know, you probably never heard of it, right? I'm just kidding. Uh, and so a uh, big movie, and I love this movie because it, it kind of has this big setup involved in it, right? That, that kind of the humor of the movie is, is Daniel wants to be a, a karate fighter, right? Uh, he wants this redemption as a karate fighter against this bully, and, and uh, Mr. Miyagi's gonna teach him how to fight but to teach him how to fight, what does he do? He has him like wax his car and like wax things, right? So he's doing the the wax on and wax off and he's got like dripping water and he's kind of putting his hand in and out. And Daniel is like, what does, this has nothing to do with fighting. Like what is going on? And then he has this moment, this climactic moment in the movie where he's fighting and he realizes that all of the preparation, all of the techniques that Mr. Miyagi was using, that in the battle, he's like, oh, This is how I block, and this is how I punch. Everything that you were teaching me actually prepared me for this exact moment. As the people of God, as they rehearsed this Passover story, they didn't know it. They thought they were just being reminded of the past, but what God was doing was actually preparing them for the real thing, preparing them for the the full, complete redemption found in Christ. When Jesus appears, they should have recognized him. They should have recognized who he was, the Passover lamb. John the Baptist did so immediately. We see in John 1, he points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we see Paul call Jesus the Passover Lamb. To make the imagery even more obvious, Jesus comes to Jerusalem, listen to this, for Palm Sunday to live with his people just as the Passover Lamb would have lived for four days with the family it was killed for. Jesus conducts the last supper with his disciples with the elements of the Passover meal, unleavened bread and wine, which he says represents his blood and body given to them but there was no lamb to eat because he was the lamb. He's arrested and tried for imperfections, but he's found spotless and blameless without sin, just like the Passover lamb. He is killed at the same time the temple is sacrificing Passover lambs just in the distance for the people. We see in John 19, his bones were not broken on the cross just as the Passover lambs in Exodus were instructed to be remain intact. The parallels that God orchestrates throughout the course of human history, scream, Jesus is the Passover lamb. This is what you put your faith and trust in and nothing else. However, Jesus is a little different because he is sufficient for a sacrifice for all time, one that doesn't need to take place over and over and over again. We find in 1 Peter three eighteen, him pick up on this theme. He says this, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Having been put death to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Fellowship relate that to today, the application is simply this, put your faith and trust in Christ's blood for redemption. The way of the people of Exodus put their faith in the blood on the doorframe. Stay in the blood of Christ the way that the people in Exodus must stay in their house covered by the blood and behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As Brian uh, comes to play in closing, uh, just a simple question. Will you put your faith and trust in Christ for redemption? Or if you've done that, will, Will you behold the Lamb of God? Will you be reminded of your purpose? Will you be reminded that we are united because of this redemption? Will you be reminded that we are defined by this redemption and you will be reminded that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things? And so uh, really in time of conclusion, uh, I'm gonna be up front here and and I really want you to do business with God. You have a few moments, uh, society is so fast paced and so crazy that you just have, you have just a few minutes to to breathe, to take a second to think, to take your thoughts and your heart and your mind, to take them to the Lord and just... Just think for a second, maybe write down on a piece of paper or in your Bible, just, just one way the Lord has just challenged you today. Maybe it's maybe it's taking on the challenge of, of pursuing people's stories in our congregation, to, to be united by our redemption. Maybe it's, maybe it's to re, be reminded of your purpose. You've kind of been on autopilot at work or in the family, to just be reminded of our purpose because of our redemption. Maybe you've been defining yourself by... Failures, by addictions, by habits, by the way other people have treated you. And you just need to redefine yourself the way that God defines you. That even in the midst of his wrath, that he provides a way out that's that's really simple, but really complex. Just stay in the blood. Just surrender to Christ. And so I'm gonna be up front. If that's you, you can come forward. If not, uh, take a moment to just process that.